You're listening to Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one show featuring the brightest minds in marketing, PR, and digital advertising. Hello, friends. Josh Harris here filling in for Darian Kovacs, and we have the chance to talk today about storytelling and marketing and really the things that make us human. Uh, and I'm so excited to be able to have a conversation with Matthew Dix. Matthew, thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to talk, talk about story- storytelling. Well, you know, I was thinking about it as I was reading over your bio. I thought this gentleman might have a legitimate claim to the title storytelling expert. I feel like that's something that's thrown around a lot, you know, like, oh, this person is a storyteller or a storytelling expert, but you really have an incredible background as a writer, as a storyteller, as someone who helps companies with marketing and so on. What does that mean to you to be, to describe yourself as a storyteller? Well, I always think of it as I work with words, you know, Hmm. whether it's on a page or on a stage or I'm in a boardroom, you know, helping an executive team craft their company's, you know, origin story, whatever I'm doing. Right. We're just trying to find the best way to put words and images in people's minds that make them feel things, you know, make them Hmm. laugh and cry and be inspired and desire to do something. But yeah, it's, most, it's mostly the manipulation of words in order to get other people to feel things and do things mm. and move in directions you want them to move in. What do you think one of the biggest misconceptions is when it comes to, to storytelling and marketing? Because a lot of people talk about how important it is to tell a good story or they talk about story-driven marketing. What do you think people are getting wrong or, or misunderstanding? Most of the time when I'm working with sort of marketing teams and we're working on campaigns or I might be working on a a speech for a CEO who's rolling something out, Mm. it's the fact that they always say they want to tell stories and they want everything sort of through the lens of storytelling. And then in the end, what often happens is all of the sharp edges, which make things interesting, you know, all all of the contrast, all of the... Mm the heightened sense of emotion that makes storytelling effective, it all sort of gets shaved down and things tend to become very white and round and safe. And what Mm. ultimately happens is people end up producing content that no one ever remembers. You know, so it's so often that I help a CEO craft a speech and ultimately once, you know, his or her people get their hands on the speech and they oh, sort of shave everything down and make it all safe. Now that CEO is going to say something that 10 minutes later, no one will ever remember, nor will they want to remember. So it's that, it's that belief that I want to tell a story, but that fear of actually telling a story and being a little daring and zigging while other people are zagging. You know, everyone wants to do it until you have to do it. And then they're not bold enough to sort of step up to the line. That's so interesting. What what is that impulse? Is it just like the story gets kind of, you know, put through the the ringer of bureaucracy? I mean, like, what is the what's the fear that that causes them to pull back and make it so generic? It's a couple of things. One is there's just sort of like corporate lingo that each company has, and so mm-hmm. you know, rather than using original language, they always say, "Well, 
you know, this is, this is how we describe that at this company. And I say, mm-hmm. I know, but you've described it that way 100 times and it still doesn't mean anything to me. And nobody you know? is, nobody's hearing it anymore. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, it means nothing. It's just become words that fill the page that don't mean anything, but are safe. Like you say them, yeah. they don't offend anyone, but they don't actually land in any place whatsoever. And then the other thing is this hesitancy to speak of oneself and to tell stories about oneself as mm-hmm. metaphors for the messages we're trying to send. I would much mm-hmm. rather hear someone talk about their life, their experience, and then tie that to the thing they're trying to sell, the thing they're trying to get us to believe in, mm-hmm. rather than just speak from that generic third person, you know, omniscient voice, which never means anything to anyone. Gosh, that is so insightful. I mean, I, I think we've all sat in, you know, speeches or presentations or church settings or whatever public speaking context you want to think about. And there's this way to sound professional and together and, you know, organized that is just so forgettable. Like yeah. you, like you said, you literally walk out of the room and you can't, there's nothing that sticks with you. There's nothing that, that moves you and compels you. And I'm just, I'm struck by the fact that what you're really describing in terms of the risk of storytelling and making it personal is there's that element of vulnerability. Like I'm going to put myself out there. I'm going to put my real emotions and desires and, and backstory literally out there for people. And I could be criticized. I could cause controversy, but without doing that, there's like zero connection. Right. Exactly. The fear of being vulnerable, the fear of acknowledging that you're not perfect, you know, the, the unwillingness to tell the embarrassing story. I worked Mm -hmm. with a CEO of a major hospital once, and she had to give a speech to 3000 of her employees. So I sat down with her. We talked about what she might talk about to her credit. The thing we decided to, for her to talk about was how her hospital had botched her husband's knee surgery really badly. Her and initially own she said, yeah, her own hospital. Oh, and initially wow. she said, why do I want to tell that story? And I said, well, first of all, no one thinks your hospital is perfect. You know, people die in your mm-hmm. hospital every day. So it's not mm-hmm. like you're really revealing anything that we don't already know, mm-hmm. but this will be your opportunity to actually stand forward and say, here's what happened to my husband. Here's the good way we handle that bad situation. And here's how I want to change things moving forward. And she said, after she gave that speech, the next day, she has never been stopped by so many employees from the car to her office who either wanted to thank her for telling the story or tell her something about her hospital that she didn't already know that they didn't think they could tell her because wow. the CEO is supposed to be living in rarefied perfect air. But when she stands on a stage and says, you botched my husband's knee surgery, suddenly there's the opportunity. The door is open to share the mistakes that you see in the hospital with the person who really needs to hear them. But that never happens. It just or it happens very rarely because people are afraid all the time. The other word, you know, I love, I love the word professional. Or actually, I hate the word professional. It's so interesting how everyone wants to be professional in the world. Yeah, I was speaking to doctors about it, you know, and I was telling them I'd love to walk into the doctor's office and have you tell me a story about your kid or about you know something. When you're talking about my high blood pressure, you know. Why don't you talk about your own high blood pressure or the high blood pressure of your father that you're dealing with? And she said to me, this doctor said, well, that wouldn't be professional. And I told her, no person has ever walked into a doctor's office thinking, I really hope this doctor is professional. What we really want is our doctor to be personal. 
We want our doctor to feel like we're connected to that human being and that person is connected to us. And the same thing happens in the business world. People will say, well, I can't stand on a stage and give that speech. That wouldn't be professional. And I say, no one has ever walked into an auditorium or into a conference room and thought, boy, I hope he's really professional today. That is the Mm. last thing on our minds. What I hope is you're not professional. I hope you're kind of on the edge. I hope you're going to say something I've never heard before. I hope you're going to do something that's never been done before that really means something to me. But this desire to be professional just makes everything round and white and boring and forgettable instead of just being bold. Like, I'm so sick of the word professional and I just want it to go away because nobody wants it. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I, um, that's, that's a worthy life mission to, <laughs> to get people. And, and really it's, it's like putting up a front is really it what is. it is. I mean, our it professionalism is. is, is this, I want to be thought of in a certain way, but really it's hiding behind lingo. It's hiding behind what everybody else is doing. And so it's this personal, vivid storytelling and creativity that actually breaks through that. I mean, those are the ad campaigns that we remember. Those are the the moments in history where leaders, women, men stand up and they they compel by telling a story that breaks through all the professionalism, right. <laughs> what's expected. How, how does this tie into marketing for a company? You know, like you're talking about this work of of working with CEOs and that's something that it's, it's interesting. I've been I've been being approached by you know, business leaders and CEOs wanting that kind of help with their own personal messaging. How does that translate though to marketing for a brand or a company? You know, because it's not an individual in the same sense. How how would you kind of share the same principle in that context? It's the idea that no matter what we're saying to people, if we're storytelling, what we're doing is we're creating movies in the minds of our audience. Sometimes we get to mm-hmm. watch the movies if we're working on a commercial. I've worked with advertising companies on commercials. But ideally what we want to do is create a movie in the mind of the people who are listening to us or even watching what we're watching, because Mm -hmm. that's what people will remember when they walk away. So it's as simple as if I'm working on a car commercial with a company and there's three Mm -hmm. people in the car, I say to the advertising company, what are the names of the three people? And they say, the names are irrelevant. They're not part of the story. And I say, but the names are relevant because if you actually named the people then you might actually find something to make each person stand Mm. out in my mind and I will remember them later. If we just view the characters in our commercials as irrelevant human beings walking through our landscape, then we're going to make irrelevant human beings walking through the landscape. Mm -hmm. But if I tell you that the daughter in the back seat is named Naomi, Mm. you're probably now already imagining Naomi. And when it comes time for hair and makeup and costuming, or even what she's going to say, suddenly she's going to be Naomi and not daughter of driver. And that really changes things. That actually makes it memorable and meaningful. And it creates that movie in the minds of our audience. Mm. So infusing storytelling and understanding that we want to be entertaining and connective and memorable when we're done watching something. It's just so important. And I think instead, what we often look for is just the typical, average, you know, everyday safe story rather than something a little more bold. 
But we remember the bold ones. You're right. We always remember the bold yeah, ones. Yeah, they stand out. They really yeah. do. Do you have any exercises or ways in which you push yourself or a client that you're working with to be more creative, to think outside the box? Because I do think, like you're saying, it's so easy to come to whether it's a, you know, a website that's being created or copy that's being written or video, whatever it might be, and just sort of look around and say, well, what's been done before? What's yeah. the norm? What's professional? And so on. How do you try to push past that and, and spark creativity? So there's a couple of things I do. One of the things I do is when I work with marketing companies, often I come in because they want me to work on a campaign, which is fine. I'm more than mm -hmm. happy to help them bring storytelling to a campaign, even if that campaign is sort of a slide deck. Mm -hmm. You know, there's storytelling in a slide deck. There is, when you switch from one slide to the other, like you're either going to surprise the audience or you're not. And oftentimes they're not, and I have to teach them how to create surprise because surprise is delightful. But what automatically happens or what inevitably happens is eventually the smart ones realize that if they just learn how to craft stories about their own life, and they start doing that on a regular basis with me, those skills are easily transferable to the work that they're doing, regardless of what they're doing, whether they're going to go speak at a conference or work on a marketing campaign or write an advertising copy. So wow. teaching human beings to tell stories about their own lives is one of the best ways to get them to begin to use storytelling in the work that they're actually doing. And so many of the smart ones say, can we start now booking some time where I just work with you on my stories rather than my marketing can like go work with the marketing department. That's fine. That's going well, but come work with me too. Cause I just want to tell better stories personally. And I, they discover that's going to really help them a lot. I'm sure there are many people who are listening who would love to get that kind of time with you. They can go to your website, which is, is it just matthewdix.com? Is that your, yeah, yeah it's just okay, my fantastic. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Matthewdix.com and they can, you know, grab time with you get your consulting, get your help on this. But you also have a book, which is entitled Storyworthy. The subtitle is Engage, Teach, Persuade, and Change Your Life Through the Power of Storytelling. Does this capture some of the, the content that you're sharing with me right now? Is, th is that what the book is about? Yeah, the book teaches people to essentially first find the stories that they need to be telling in their everyday mm. life, whether it's from their past or what's happening right now. And I teach them lots of strategies to do that. And mm. I actually think it's the most important thing I teach. It just changes the way people view their lives, whether they want to tell stories or not. The first third of the book is just good for life uh, in that. So it's, it's actually kind of, kind of opening your eyes to see the stories around you or in your life that you might not be paying attention to. Yeah. Like I'm not a um, earthy, crunchy kind of human being. I'm not spiritual in any way, <laughs> but I will tell you that the processes that I teach and the strategies that I teach will change the way you view your life forever. And you'll feel so much better about your life as a result. It happens for, it's, I'm not a unicorn. It's not special for me. It happens for thousands of people all over mm. the world. I teach a process called homework for life. It's actually, I've done a Ted talk on it. You just go Google the phrase homework for life. I've actually trademarked it. So Google homework for life. You can see my Ted talk on it. It's the single most important thing I teach to any human being, whether they speak or don't speak, because it will change the way you view your life forever and it'll make you feel better about your life. It's not an exaggeration, Josh, to say that every single day, without exception, I receive either a tweet or a Facebook message or an Instagram message or an email from someone around the world saying, I started doing your homework for life and it's changed my life. Every single day I get Oh my it. gosh, that's so, I, I'm just like so excited to, <laughs> to Google that. Simple. 
You know, yeah. I'm an elementary school teacher, so I believe that everything should be simple and repeatable and practicable and manageable. So it's like brushing your teeth. Everything has to be easy. So the first half of the book teaches that. Second half of the book basically says, now let's teach you how to tell a story. Let me teach you the strategies on how to start a story, how to hold the audience, how to build stakes, how to work with humor, all of those things to move through a story and, you know, create something that is genuinely entertaining and connective and the kind of thing that holds someone's attention, you know, keeps them listening. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. So that those principles that you share in StoryWorthy in, in your, your TED Talk, Homework for Life, you're saying that regardless of the output, regardless of whether or not you're marketing or whether you have to write a speech, that this is the skill that has just meaning for every human being. Yeah. And just, yeah. yeah, yeah, go ahead. You'd be shocked at the people who I work with. I teach storytelling for dating because people <laughs> realize they can get the first date, which means like you have hygiene and a job, right? But if you can't get the second date, it means the stuff you said on the first date wasn't good enough to get the second date. And oftentimes it's, People tell the wrong stories on their second date They or on their first date. They say the things that don't really appeal to other human beings. They just say the wrong stuff. They have the wrong sense of what is a good story. So I teach storytelling for dating. I teach it to priests and ministers and rabbis all the time to connect with their congregations. I taught it to Santa Clauses just before the pandemic because they realized like in the mall, if they can tell a quick 30 second story to make that kid smile, then they can get more kids on their lap in an hour than they could otherwise. So Santa Claus is telling good stories. It's going to help them with their business. Wow. I've taught storytelling for people who just want more friends, uh, mm. job interviewing. I worked with the Mohawk Nation in Canada because they were learning the language for the first time and they wanted to say entertaining things with the language they were learning. It's hard for me to find sort of a profession that I have not worked with yet in terms of storytelling. It's uh, it's just, it applies to everything. And the best thing about it is like, you don't have to buy software. You know, you don't need to build yeah. a building. You don't need to buy mm -hmm. equipment. You just have to take what people already do. Every person who works with you tells stories. Now, most of them tell bad stories because the stories we tell, we often tell to the people who love us. We tell stories to our friends and our family. And so our friends and our family are just engaged in our stories because they care about us. So right. we get negative feedback all the time. We tell a story poorly our loved one thinks it's great. And then we think we're a good storyteller when in fact, we just have the <laughs> wrong audience. We have to tell stories to strangers to determine whether we're actually good or not. My mind is being blown because you, you know, you're talking about individuals, but you could insert the word company in all of these sentences that you're sharing. And it applies on a, on a corporate level, just as much, you know what I mean? Like companies, they're only listening to them themselves. They've got a feedback loop of feedback from people who work for them. Yep. They think their stories are good, but then when yep. they go out there <laughs> and they share their story with the, you know, their, their, the marketplace and the audience, it's falling flat. People don't want to go on a second date. They don't want to buy their product, whatever it might be. It's just so interesting how, you know, with a company or a brand, the same kind of personal attributes of being a human end up applying. 
Yeah. And I just think that's so, I think that's so fascinating, but would you, would you give me a little like insight into what are the, what are the wrong stories on the first date? I just think that's such a fascinating concept. (laughs) Like what? (laughs) Sure. So I was talking to a guy, it was a couple of years ago. He was in one of my open workshops where you can come for any reason whatsoever. And he went on a first date and he's an attorney and it was a Friday night and he had closed a really big deal for his firm and he was feeling great about it. He went on a first date with a woman. And on the day I said, what'd you talk about? And he said, well, I closed this huge deal. So we talked about the deal. We talked about how I had to like the things I had to do, the little trickery I had to do to negotiate what we wanted. And then she never called me back. And I said, well, I wouldn't have dinner with you either if I was going to sit down and listen to you closing a deal. And he said, isn't that like impressive though, that I closed the deal? And I said, that's not what we're looking for in human beings. We're not looking for people who want to brag about the good things they've done. So I asked them, I said, when were you most embarrassed? When was the last like really embarrassing thing happened? And it took a little while to get him to say it, but he said six months before he went to the restroom at work He was peeing into a urinal and somehow he just sort of like lost track of what he was doing and he ended up peeing right down the front of his pants. And so (laughs) he's wet the front of his pants and he's got like his leg up on the sink and the hand dryer pointing at the pants, trying to dry them. And then like someone comes in. So then he has to pretend he's washing his hands. He waits till that person leaves and he's got his leg back up on the (laughs) sink and it's not working. He's trying to get them dry. People keep coming in. So he takes his suit coat off He ties it around his waist to cover the pee stain on his pants. He goes to his office. He closes the door. He cancels all the meetings that day. And he basically sits in his office and does work while the room slowly smells of urine. And then at the end of the day, he leaves. And he's just like, (laughs) he's horrified that he's peed on himself and had this happen. And I said to him, I said, if you had told that story, you probably would have gotten a second date. And he said, why would I tell a woman I don't know about peeing on myself you know, on our first date. And I said, because everyone in the room just laughed at the whole story you just told. And I now feel like I'm deeply connected with you. Like you closing a deal, I don't feel any closer to you. But have I ever been in a situation where I've been in a bathroom or in some public space and thought, oh no, what am I going to do now? Like, oh yes, it's my so, pants. so true. My zipper doesn't work anymore, right? I've just stepped in mud and I'm squishing I said, those are the things that people want to hear. They Because that's vulnerability. There's strength in talking about your embarrassment and your shame. It takes enormous courage to be able to do that. There's no courage in saying, mm. I closed the big deal. That is an easy thing to say. And what people want to hear, companies, customers, what they want to hear is people say the things that most people are unwilling to say. We want to hear people say hard things, not easy things. Easy things are boring. Easy things are round and white and vanilla. We want hard things to be said. So that that's what I would so say. Powerful. That is so powerful. The idea that, um, you know, the things that make us feel strong personally, the story of closing the deal is it, it might, you know, boost our ego. It might make us feel competent, but you're exactly right. It also makes us feel inaccessible. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like, oh, I'm, I'm so great. I'm so, you know, into myself. And, and so actually, you know, asking the question, what are the needs of the person I'm speaking to? You know, that principle of putting yourself in their shoes. And the truth is, if I'm being told a story, I'd rather hear the human story. I'd rather hear the, the moment of weakness and embarrassment 
that makes me feel like I can relate to you. And, and you're right. That's where the connection is. That's, yeah. that's really a, a great example. I will, I will definitely remember the P story when we, uh, when we end our conversation today. So <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, it, the other thing about that story is, doesn't it create a movie in your mind? Didn't you see oh, that guy sure. in the bathroom, Absolutely. in the corporate restroom? Whereas closing the deal doesn't create a movie in our mind. It's just a guy talking to us about something he did at work one day, as opposed to the real, you know, high stakes narrative mm. of, you know, hand dryers and, you know, pea stained pants and, and bathrooms. All of that is just a better story to tell. And, you know, it's equivalent to the CEO at the hospital saying you botched my knee surgery. That's the kind of thing we want to hear. The hard thing is the thing we mm-hmm. want to hear. So powerful. You've got a podcast. I'm just curious, what is it about? Where can people uh, subscribe to it and tune in? It's, um, it's called Speak Up Storytelling. You can get it, I think, wherever you get podcasts, if my assistant is doing her job properly. So you can get it just about everywhere. My wife and I, we produce a show here in Connecticut and throughout New England where storytellers take stages and tell stories. And I always tell a story alongside them and my wife hosts the show and we record the shows. And so what we do is in every episode is we take one of those stories from our show and we play it and then we break it down and we talk about what the storyteller is doing well, what they could have done to make that story better. And then I actually do a homework for life segment where I go through my homework for life for the week and I pull out one item, one moment from my life throughout the course of the week that could become a story. And I talk about how to build that into a story to teach people how to sort of find those moments in their own lives as well. So it's sort of like a, it's joining me for a storytelling class. You know, it used to be a weekly podcast when the pandemic hit. Now things are less consistent. My wife is a kindergarten teacher and uh, so kindergarten is hell. So I have to get her to sit down for an hour and record with me, which is a little more challenging now. But I think we'll I think we'll be back on a regular schedule. But we have more than a hundred episodes. So if you haven't oh, been incredible. listening, there's yeah. plenty of content for you to go back and listen to. I love the format. That's really that's really inspiring. You're also a novelist. And yes. I'm I'm curious if you had to make a choice. I know I know novels are probably like children. You love them all equally, but you if you had to pit one of these in someone's hand. And, and talk about why it's it's meaningful to you. Which which of your books would you choose? Yeah, that's a terrible question. So I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat. I'm gonna tell you that my wife would tell you that Memoirs of an Imaginary Friend is the book you should start with. And it is my most successful book. It's been translated mm. into 30 languages. It's an international bestseller. So so yes, go read that one. It seems to be very popular. Memoirs of an Imaginary Friend. Memoirs of an Imaginary Friend. The story, What's the premise of it? Yeah. It's um it's the premise is sort of like imagining if imaginary friends were actually real beings that could just only be seen by one person. Mm. So it's a story told from the perspective of an imaginary friend. It's for adults, but you know, it sounds sort of kid-like and it actually has crossed over into the teen market. But yeah, the premise is if an imaginary friend was a real being, what would that be like? And what would that life be like? So that's my wife's favorite book. The one I would tell you to go read is 21 Truths About Love, which is a book written entirely in list form. It is just a series of lists written by a compulsive list maker and the lists tell you the story. And uh, I'm a fan of that book right now. It's one of my more recent novels. And I just, I love the that's fact so that I creative. pull that off. Yeah. Wow. So where, that's where a did good you, book for how guys. Did you have that, how did you have that idea? Like that's such a wild concept. I was in faculty meetings with a principal who I didn't like, who was sort of making everyone sad. So I started writing funny lists about stupid principles and passing it around the table. And that notebook, (laughs) 
started to grow into funny lists about lots of things. And then one day, weirdly, like my fictional brain kicked in and it stopped being written by me. It started to be written by this fictional person that suddenly popped in my head. And so over time, it actually became a novel. I didn't think it was going to be a novel. My agent thought it was a novel. My editor thought it was a novel. My wife thought it was a novel. I thought they were all crazy, but it turned out to be a novel. And uh, I like the fact that I sort of wrote it during bad professional development and boring faculty <laughs> meetings and, you know, little fits and starts here and there. All the all the students who are listening are encouraged to know that teachers pass notes too in meetings, yeah, we do. I guess. That... <laughs> yeah. Well, when your colleagues are sad and you want to make them happy, laughter uh, is a great way to do it. That's so good. Well, both those books sound um, sound amazing. I, I'd like to check both out. Are you? Do you think that um, your uh, memoirs of an imaginary friend will ever be developed into a, a movie or a TV show? Or is that something you'd like to see? It's close. Uh, you know, I've published six novels and four of them are option for film, which I've discovered means that you uh, get paid a small but not inconsequential amount of money to basically wait. And then they pay you a little bit more money to wait some more and a little bit more money to wait some more. So I don't ever believe it's really going to happen because my agent has told me not to believe it's ever going to happen. Mm. You know, don't get your hopes up. But that is the closest one to actually becoming a movie. So, so maybe, maybe someday. Oh, I hope to see it. I mean, I just, from your description, I think it, it would make a great, uh, I, I think it could make a great film. I agree. I think someone should definitely make it. Well, actually the person who has the option rights right now, you should definitely make it into a film. I mean, they okay. believe it should be a film too. So uh, hopefully they will find the right people and it will happen someday. That's great. Talking today with Matthew Dix. He is a author, storyteller, marketing and communications consultant. And also, and this is what I'm most encouraged by, an elementary school teacher who is passing on the importance of good storytelling to the next generation. So Matthew, thank you so much for, for being on the podcast today. I'm really inspired and I'm going to look forward to, to benefiting from your work in the days to come. Thanks, Josh. This was a really fun conversation. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Marketing News Canada. For more episodes and other great stories from Canadian marketers, visit marketingnewscanada.com. All episodes are recorded in the Jelly Marketing Studio, thanks to our producer, Chris Penner, and editors, Travis Jeffers and The Podfather. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.